remember how excited I was when I was a little boy and I got my first bicycle. Um, I was over the moon. And like most first bikes, it had training wheels. Training wheels are, you know, temporary wheels you stick on the back of the bike to make sure that you're not constantly falling over. Training wheels are great things. They're actually meant to restrain our motion. So training wheels keep the bike not only for falling down, but when you have training wheels on a bike, you can't turn as sharply. You're kind of restricted and hemmed in, but the entire point for restricting and hemming you in is that your body learns the mechanics of pedaling. It learns what it means to hold your balance and steer and sit up. But training wheels are also designed to be temporary things. They necessarily prepare you to not need them. Training wheels prepare you to ride without them. And they keep the experience of learning to run a bike from being nothing but endlessly falling down. But I also remember, not just getting my first bike, I remember when I got my training wheels taken off. My Uncle Larry told me that if I learned to ride without training wheels, he would buy me a Nintendo. This was uh, 1988, 89, somewhere around in there. You know, Nintendo's the biggest thing in the world at the time. And that's all he needed to tell me. I think Larry, my Uncle Larry said it and did not anticipate my uh, excitement to learn without the training wheels because I told my parents, take them off now. They got to go. <laughs> I got to get this Nintendo. And so, with that greater goal in mind, we took the training wheels off. And I think I fell once, but the training wheels had done their job. I had been prepared to ride without them. I fell down maybe one time, but I got it. They had done their work, and I was able to ride without them. And now I was able to come into that fuller freedom to be able to take sharper turns and the fuller freedom of hours spent on that Nintendo. But I want you to imagine a situation where instead of getting those training wheels taken off, that I just kept riding with them, that I treated those training wheels like they were a permanent part of the bicycle. I would have never been able to take sharp turns. I never would have been able to jump off of ramps. I also wouldn't have gotten that Nintendo. I would have never been able to ride off-road, down trails, through the woods, which I did all the time. I would have been missing out on the entire purpose for which those training wheels existed, for me to ride unrestrained. I bring all this up because in the book of Galatians, written by the Apostle Paul in the first century, he's dealing with a situation where people are telling these new Christians who are coming from non-Jewish backgrounds, who have no background or experience whatsoever in what we call the Old Testament, in reading it or culturally experiencing a community defined by it, they're telling these new Christians that for them to be fully accepted, for them to be welcomed as fully part of God's people, for them to have assurance that they're loved by God, that they need faith in Jesus plus becoming culturally Jewish. And what I mean by that, that is faith in Jesus plus beginning to follow all the dietary laws that you find in the law of Moses in the Old Testament, all the rituals, all the ceremonies, all the things. They're saying you need Jesus plus the law of Moses. And what the Apostle Paul essentially says in our passage that we're about to read is that to really understand and appreciate what God was doing in the first place in giving the law of Moses to his people, you have to take a step back and look at a larger view. That the law, with all of its restrictions and ceremonies and rituals, was not a permanent thing, 
It was a temporary thing, a lot like training wheels, meant to prepare God's people for the arrival of Jesus. The law was like training wheels that restricted and trained and able to in order to prepare God's people for a greater freedom. In other words, the law of Moses was given with an expiration date in mind. Always. With that said, we come to our passage. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 through 29. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. That's Jesus. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given by, through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that in it you show us who you are and what you're about. And so you show us who we are in you. I pray in these moments as we stare into the riches of your word that you would move by your spirit to show us the glory of Jesus and all that is ours in him. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a big part of what Paul is writing about here in the first century is he's saying essentially if that we are going to live the lives that God is calling us to in the here and now, the lives that God wants us to live, it's essential to know a couple of things. It's essential to know when we are and it's essential to know where we are. When we are and where we are. And if we don't know where we are in God's story of redemption, then we're going to misunderstand what it means to live in all that God has for us. So we're going to talk about each of those. I'm kind of breaking it down into two sections. When we are and where we are. First, let's look at when. Understanding when we are. You may have had this experience before, but we have Scripture. It's a great gift that God has given to us. I often pray it and say it, that God reveals who he is and what he's about so that we can know who we are in him. So we want to live lives that are in accordance with scripture. We want to take what God ser says seriously. So we pick up the Bible. We're looking for guidance for life. And maybe you've had this experience where you flip through and you turn to the book of Leviticus, third book of the Bible. And you're flipping through and you're reading and you see some things that make sense. Things about loving your neighbor as yourself. Things about worshiping the one true God and Him alone. Okay, that makes sense. That's good instruction for me that I, I think I can follow. Then you read some things that seem very strange. About not eating certain types of foods. You read about how to lay out a field. Like how to 
plant grain beside each other. You read things about weaving garments and, and not mixing uh, uh, different fabric materials. You read about the precise way to perform a sacrifice at a place called the tabernacle. And if you've never read through Leviticus, it is incredibly detailed about you know, where the priests are supposed to cut the animals. It's almost like a butcher's instruction at the grocery store. But it's incredibly detailed. And you read through that and you're thinking, okay, is this what, is this what obedience to God looks like? I'm opening this because this is, this is God's word, but... I don't, this seems completely alien to me. Is this what obedience to God in my life in 2024 looks like? The answer is no, it's not. We, we can see all the food laws, but we don't need to follow them. Though it's a good, good idea to be mindful about what we eat. We don't need to follow the instructions about how to lay out a field or weave garments, though it's a good thing to be mindful about how we work and how we live as consumers. We don't need to rebuild the tabernacle and start offering sacrifices. But why not? Why not? Is it just because, well, that's the Old Testament that doesn't apply to you? That's an answer we often hear. Is it just because these rules are kind of strange to us? No. Because in a lot of ways they were strange when Moses gave them to the Israelites 3,400 years ago. No, we don't follow those rules and those laws the way they're given in Leviticus because of when we are. Not because God changed his mind. Not because they, uh, they just don't exist anymore. Because of when we are. Think about it in the imagery of childhood. This is kind of uh, similar to the, the training wheels illustration that I said a minute ago. But think about it in the imagery of childhood. God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he tells him that, Abraham, through your family, I'm going to bring blessing and not curse to this world. Through your family, I am going to work to overcome and defeat the power of sin. And that promise was almost like the conception of God's people. So when God's people were conceived, think of it that way. And between then and the exodus through Moses, 430 years later, that was like the pregnancy of God's people. The Old Testament even speaks of it in these terms. That the promise given to Abraham was like conception. And when God's people, the Israelites, have grown from one family to a nation of people who are bringing, being brought out of slavery in Egypt, it is like the nation being born. And the experience of being in Egypt was like being in a womb. And the exodus was a birth. And the law of Moses, if you think of it that way, are like the instructions that we give to a child. The instructions that we give to a kid to teach them mindfulness and how the world is designed to work and what matters. The law of Moses given was not a rule to tell them how to earn God's love. I think that sometimes we can think about the Old Testament that way. That way back then, God gave them a law and if they followed it, then they would earn God's love. But thankfully, we don't live under that. We don't have to earn God's love. But all those Old Testament folks, they kind of did. That's not true. 
It wasn't a way to make God's promises happen. God was the one who made the commitment that his promises would come true. No, the law given through Moses was like the basic rules that, tend, that we tend to instill in our children to prepare them for full maturity. We tell a kid, don't cross the road without holding an adult's hand, right? And the reason we tell them that is because they don't have situ- situational awareness yet. They don't understand that a car is 4,000 pounds and they are 40 pounds. (laughs) They don't understand that not every driver can see everything and they're not necessarily going to stop. And so we tell a kid, don't cross the street without holding an adult's hand. It's not designed for kids to always be people that need to look around and find an adult. If I'm, I'm 40 years old, if I think I need to go outside and cross the road, but I got to look around for another adult to hold their hand... Like, that might be sweet, but that's not the goal, right? That's not the goal of why my mom taught me, don't cross the street without holding an adult's hand. That was a temporary rule to teach me situational awareness, what's going on around me. Or think about, don't ever touch the oven when it's on. Don't touch the oven when it's on. We tell kids that because we don't want them to get burned constantly when the oven's on. Because they don't automatically understand, oh, it's on, and that thing that wasn't hot before is hot now. But the goal in the long term is not for that kid to never touch a hot oven, otherwise they won't learn how to cook and won't be able to cook when they're older. I bring all that up because the national laws, all the laws that regulate the political life of God's people that we find in the law of Moses in the Old Testament. And all the ceremonial laws restricting and and guiding worship in the tabernacle and later the temple, they are like that. They were given because we, like them, live in a world of darkness. It's what the Apostle Paul means when he says in verse 19 here that the law was given because of transgressions. This was a young nation Remember the illustration, they had just been born and it's a world of incredible violence and darkness and this young nation would have been absolutely swallowed up by larger nations that surrounded them if they did not have guidance for their particular situation. And so God gave them this basic constitution, these basic uh, instructions and it wasn't a picture of a utopian perfect world. It wasn't like, Here's this, and you follow this, and then everything will be uh, sunshine and daisies. No, it wasn't a utopian thing. It was a realistic structure fitted to the brokenness of this world and to the young nation that they were. To understand what I'm talking about when I say understanding when we are is to take all of this into account. That keeps us, I think, from belittling our ancestors in the faith, because sometimes Christians can talk about the Old Testament in ways that are, frankly, anti-Semitic. We can talk about the Old Testament in ways that almost disregard that God had ever worked in, in, in Jewish people at all. That's not what God's calling us to. In the same way that we don't disdain ourselves, there's a, there's a fundamental unity between us today in 2024 and the Israelites at Mount Sinai in 3,400 years ago. And we don't disdain our selfish children, right? In the same way, there's a fundamental unity that exists here. We're part of one thing that God has done. But we have to understand when we are. When we pick up Scripture and we turn to Leviticus 
And if we start trying to follow all the instructions because we think that's what God is calling us to, and there are some people that have tried to do that, they say, okay, we've got to eat um, exactly how it in, 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 that's what God's calling us to today. To do that is like to be a fully mature heir of an estate or a house that is going back to live by childhood rules. We don't worship at a tabernacle or try to rebuild a tabernacle or a temple because the tabernacle and temple pointed forward to Jesus. It pointed forward to Jesus and was fulfilled in Jesus. This is why we don't offer sacrifices. You guys don't need to bring lambs in here and have me cut them and offer them on a burnt altar to cook them because that was fulfilled in Jesus. It's why we don't need to mobilize as a political unit to get Old Testament laws regulated today. It's why we don't need to throw all of our resources behind trying to get Old Testament laws instituted in the United States because that's not what God's calling us to. But if we don't understand when we are, we might think that. Now, this does not mean we throw the Old Testament aside. In the same way that we can have a relationship with a mentor from our childhood when we're adults. And it can remain as significant. Like, I had an incredible coach when I was in high school, basketball coach. And this man, he literally, he'd tell me to jump and I'd ask him how high. Like, I'd, Coach Smith told me what was up. I still see him every couple of months. And we have a great time. But when, we're, when I see Coach Smith now, he doesn't say, Inman, run some suicide. No, he doesn't send me running laps. We have a different relationship now. But it doesn't mean that now that I'm adult, I'm like, well, I don't listen to what Coach Smith says. Or I don't take him seriously. No. We don't pick up the Old Testament and try to put it into practice in, in the way that, that, that one of our ancestors in the faith would have 3,000 years ago. But what we learn through it is utterly irreplaceable. It's irreplaceable groundwork for us to appreciate and understand all the riches that belong to us in Christ. And not only that, I've been talking about the national laws and the ceremonial laws. We have, we have the moral law of the Old Testament, which we went through a series in the fall on that. That stands for God's people for all times, no matter when we are. It is basic instructions on what it means to be his freed people. So hear me clearly, if, if for nothing else. Our relationship to the Old Testament isn't one where if tomorrow we decided to cut off those, those 39 books, um, we'd be okay. There's a reason why we don't just have a New Testament. Because the New Testament is utterly incomprehensible apart from what God had done in the Old. It's the same reason you don't just, if you're reading Lord of the Rings, you don't just pick up Return of the King. It doesn't make any sense apart from Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers. Anyway, I could belabor that point. But we have to understand when we are. We also have to understand where we are. And to put it simply, and Paul talks about it a lot here, we are in Christ. We are in Christ. By faith, we are united to Jesus. The New Testament talks about this a lot. It doesn't literally mean, uh, I talked to a guy one time who thought that being in Christ meant that like 
the world was Jesus' physical body <laughs> now and that we were literally kind of cells inside of him? I don't know. But the New Testament does use imagery to speak about what it means for us to be in Christ. We're united to him by faith, meaning that all is that is his by right becomes ours by grace. He takes on what is ours. We take on what is his. And we are united together. It's not just a transaction that happens. We are united together with him. And one of the things that this means, us being in Christ, it means that when we individually and together ask the question, who am I? We can never answer it apart from answering, who is Jesus and what did he do? You cannot answer the question, who am I, apart from answering the question, who is Jesus and what did he do? Because we are in him, fundamentally united to him. This is what the New Testament talks about when it says that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. The point it's making is that we are so profoundly united to Jesus that who we are at a fundamental level is secure and safe. And that there's nothing in the, the toils of this world. There is nothing in the menace of Satan and spiritual darkness that can touch that. We are hidden in Christ with God. And where is Jesus? He is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And we are seated with him. He is ruling and reigning right now. And it does not feel like I'm connected sometimes with something or someone who is ruling and reigning. But I am. And Jesus is guiding history. We, talk, we sang about it other, earlier. Jesus commands my destiny. Jesus commands my destiny. And the, the idea that he is reigning and I am in him means that his purposes will be accomplished and I will be along in a sense to enjoy the ride, to enjoy the benefits. He is guiding things where he is going to make all things new. And that's just not an abstract thing for me. That I will be a beneficiary of that. Meaning I will see all the things that just trouble my heart about the way sin has marred this community and my own self, my family, my friends. I will see all of that renewed. Not just because I hope for it, but because I'm in Christ. We are united to Jesus. Um. Traditionally, this is broken down into a couple of different categories. The first one's justification. We are united to Jesus, and through our union with Jesus, we are justified in God's sight. This is legal language, like a courtroom language. Not only are we forgiven of sin, as glorious as that is, but we are positively righteous. It is not just that we have stood before God and Jesus has worked and now God says, not guilty. No, God is judged, looks at us in Christ, and he says, not just not guilty, but righteous. Not just clean slate, but you get the credit for Jesus doing and acting and feeling right in his whole life. And now there's no condemnation for you. It's impossible. Yes, your sin exists. Yes, you did sin. It's not God winking at it, but he's taking care of it in Jesus. And we are justified in God's sight by faith and faith alone. And the righteousness of Jesus is credited to us. 
That's part of what's ours in our union with Jesus. What is his by right becomes ours by grace. Through our union with Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. He's the only begotten son of God, but he came into this world to win us to be the adopted daughters and sons of God and to build for us, in a sense, a home with him through the wood and nails of his cross that never goes away. We have a home with God that belongs to him by right, becomes ours by grace because we're united to Jesus. Not only that, through our union with Jesus, we are being transformed to be like him. We can think of justification and adoption as past things, like something God declared or did. But he's applying his grace to us in real time. He gives us grace that is fitted to our day-to-day life. And we are being transformed in time to be like Him. This is usually called sanctification. It's the process of us becoming like who Jesus would be if He was us. (laughs) And we are progressively being renewed in our entire person after the image of God. What is His by right becomes ours by grace. I'm belaboring this, but it is glorious and wonderful. And this is the key to understanding where we are. And all of this isn't just an individual thing either. In Jesus, the restrictions that had hemmed his people in, in the Old Testament, to make them peculiar and different, they've all found their fulfillment, and the doors to God's kingdom have been flung open wide. And now the kingdom of God, more clearly than it ever was before, is a multinational, multi-ethnic, worldwide community that transcends the lines that we tend to create. That's part of what belongs to us in Christ. And now the necessary marker of being His is faith in Him and that alone. Which leaves us in this world with a calling. We become those whose calling in Christ is to begin to do the work of asking in our relationships with other people. If this kingdom is truly multinational, multicultural, not limited to one particular expression, we ask, am I laying cultural requirements in front of people before I fully accept them as a brother or sister in Christ? We sang earlier in that new song, Take It Easy, about, um, this is the part that made me cry. Lay down the scales where you weigh out your life. The measures are empty. Just leave them behind. But how often do we maybe lay aside the scales in our own mind thinking about ourselves, but we still have measures and scales for other people. We still have measures and scales, and we define worth for other people on whether they meet this, uh, they, they can jump through this hoop that we have set up. It's part of our calling. If the gospel's true and we are truly in Christ, not just united to him, but united to all who are united to him, what does that mean for us? Are we putting a barrier up on things like how somebody else is dressed? It's a big deal in Southern church culture, how somebody dresses. I know of many, many stories where people are told to leave because they have shorts on. Or stories about people being just flat out kicked out because they have 
a hairstyle people don't like? Are we putting cultural barriers up about what people do for a living? This happens more often than we want to think it does, but there's a reason why so many churches seem to be divided on class lines, what we usually call class lines. You'll have a church that's mostly professionals. It's people that have multiple degrees, and they're leaders in their field. And you'll look around and you'll realize, oh, wait, our, this church is entirely professionals. Meaning there's an entire cast of people who are working who would not consider themselves doctors or lawyers or whatever it may be, who are being told in one way or another they're not welcome in this community. Are we making people jump through hoops before we think that they're truly worthy of being seen and known and loved? Galatians 3 here leads us to realize what a destructive thing that can be and how it is truly a denial of what is ours in Christ. Paul makes the point in verse 26. Look at it again. In Christ you are all children of God. How? Through faith. How are you a child of God? Through faith. We together are clothed with Christ. And this radical reality breaks down the lines that we tend to draw to give people worth. To decide if they are worth engaging with and befriending. It destroys things like racism. It destroys things like the kind of patriotism. Patriotism is a good thing. It destroys the kind of patriotism, though, that snubs its nose at people who just happen to be from a different place. As it says in verse 28, he says specifically, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Now, Paul's not saying that Jews and Gentiles don't exist. He's not saying, pretend you're not Jewish. That's part of what formed a person and who they are. Pretend you're not Gentile. What he's saying is people are still Jewish and Gentile and whatever background they may be, and that's okay. But he is saying that those things cannot be a decider of worth and value. We cannot hold on to our prejudices as something that we think or feel makes us better than others. If you're somebody who's faced prejudice like that, based on where you're from, um, hear me, you are not less than in God's kingdom. You don't have to live under the verdicts that have been passed on you. In our world, we still live with the fallout of prejudice and cowardice of church leaders who ages ago, I mean, it always breaks my heart to think about in the 17th and 18th and 19th century, even the 20th and 21st century, the reality that today I can say black church and white church, and you know exactly what I mean. People have often said the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning at 11 a.m. But that exists because hundreds of years ago, church leaders allowed their prejudice to dominate how they led. They allowed their prejudice to overrule the reality of Galatians 3. And it was a lie then and it's a lie now. And that kind of thing has prejudice, has no place in God's kingdom. The reality of us being in Christ and all children of God by faith reveals this for what it is. Not just that, it destroys the, the things that we tend to put into place 
uh, like our status. Those things that we tend to create. I've already spoken some about this, but as he says here, in Christ there is neither slave nor free. I want you to consider the situation that in the first century in this church in Galatians, or in, in, in the re- these churches in the Galatian region, that in the church there were people who were masters and politically on paper owned people, and there were people who were slaves. In the regular world, those people did not interact whatsoever. They certainly didn't have intimate friendships. They didn't live in the same worlds, fundamentally. The only time a slave and a master would interact is when the master needed the slave to do something for them. But the radical community of the church meant that you had situations where you may have a slave who's an elder. (laughs) Because worth is not defined on our status. It is not. If you keep going in the New Testament, you'll see places where the Apostle Paul encourages people to pursue freedom if they can. That he, so here he's not talking about just pretend you're not a slave or just pretend you're not someone who owns people. Later on he tells people, if you are in bondage, if you are a slave and you can, get your, you can acquire your freedom, do it. And he tells slave masters, he says, you have to treat your slaves like siblings. Which isn't just saying go set them free. It means you are bonded to them and responsible for caring for them in their freedom as an equal. But what Paul is saying here isn't that those lines like just pretend they don't exist. What he's saying is those status markers, those social markers that we tend to invest with so much weight in deciding if somebody's worthy of respect and honor are to have no place in the community of the church. As he says earlier in Galatians, as he says later on in Romans, God does not show favoritism. You are not worth more if you have school degrees and letters before or after your name. Period. You are not worth more if you are popular or you have this really high paying or prestigious job. And you are not worth less if you are somebody who dropped out of school or if you have a job that you work just to make ends meet that would never enter into your mind to be a dream that you would have. The idea of our social status determining our worth is a lie that is being exposed in Christ. And he frees us from it. Another thing that Paul mentions here, this idea of our unity being in Christ, that we are all children of God by faith, it destroys our lines of gender that we tend to use to divide. As he says here, there's no male or female. This is not Paul uh, saying that men and women, the the, the differences between men and women don't exist. That's not him saying that. But what he is saying and what he's directly speaking to is that we cannot act like church and being God's people is a boys club where women do all the hard work and men sit back and enjoy lording power over others. That's a lot of times what churches are. I've been in churches my whole life. And more often than not in our culture, it's women doing 85% of the work and men making the decisions. As if it's a a man's thing, the women are there just to support it and make it happen. That's not what 
church is to be. Women, hear me. You're not less important in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not a man thing. Men are not of more worth to Jesus or more value to Jesus. He loves that you are a woman. And he's placed so many gifts in all of you. Gifts that are meant to be used for his glory and to the good of your sisters and brothers in Jesus. And any person that has tried to make you feel like you're worthless than a man is a person that has not fully grasped the power of the gospel to unite and to free us. You don't have to fit into a mold of pink and girly stuff, but if you like pink and girly stuff, that's good too. And you don't have to deny those things if you like them. But you are not less than. There's not second status in God's kingdom. We are all children of God. How? By faith. We are clothed with what? Not our status. We're not clothed with our gender. We're not clothed with uh, any of these things that we tend to put into place to, to make ourselves feel like we're worth it. We're clothed with Christ. And all these things and so many more. Our calling in the here and now is to know when we are, where we are, and who we are together. May God bless us as we continue to dive deeper and deeper into what it means to be a community in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glory of the gospel. That you have won us to yourself in Christ, who died to take on our sins, who rose for our justification, and now is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and is ruling and reigning over his church. Thank you for that. Thank you that you in this world have given us the community of the church as a community to be defined by the realities of the gospel. And I pray that you would make us mindful, even now in our young age as a church, of pursuing what matters to you, valuing what you value, that we would be a church that doesn't, doesn't you know, put blinders on about the reality of, of, of gender or social differences or, or backgrounds, but rather a community that sees all of those things but does not invest them with uh, them being something to decide worth or value that you would rather make us people who center all things on the gospel of Jesus, that find our all in all in you. pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 The gospel's wonderful, friends.